Listen, if you could open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that's where we are going to be this morning. And uh, it feels like a great chasm. There's a few brave souls right here in the first three or four rows, but uh, then a chasm that goes to the back. So in the late 80s, let me take you on a history lesson, those of you uh, younger than me. In the late 80s, there was a great moral, moral and ethical question that you were faced with on a regular basis. This was back in the day when they provided bags at the grocery store for free, if you can believe it. And as a bagger at Lucky, uh, I would watch person after person show up at the grocery store, and I would be the one introducing them to this ethical dilemma, paper or plastic. Remember that? Some of you remember this. And I would watch seemingly highly functioning people be utterly paralyzed by this question. Paper or plastic? Here's why. There was a culture war going on. There were mixed messages. Would they choose life or death? Would they love the earth or hate the earth? And they couldn't get it in their heads. They're like, man, I think, it's, I think this is a lose-lose proposition. There were mixed messages that abounded. So if someone chose paper, I would whisper under my breath, tree killer. (laughs) And if they chose plastic, I'd say dolphin phobic. I would just call them names. Not really. I wouldn't really do that. But I thought it. Um, That's why I kept my job. I think things and don't always say them. That was the dilemma, right? If you chose paper, you're killing more trees. How could you do that, customer? But if you chose plastic, that thing's going to end up in the ocean and kill all manner of wildlife, potentially wipe out entire species. How on earth could you do that? And so people were left with this. Here's what's happening today. You see where I'm going with this, I hope. We have far more pressing questions that face us around gender. Far more. And just like your grocery store ancestors, a decision must be made. There are long-lasting consequences to what we decide, and many feel like this is a lose-lose proposition. If I choose this, I'm going against culture and potentially my own family and friends and community. I'm going against the training I get at work from HR. If I go this route, I feel like I'm ignoring my conscience. I feel like I'm ignoring some basic things. By the way, there's one more thing in common that both... Paper or plastic people arguing in the 80s and people today arguing about gender and roles uh, have in common, and it's this. All sides claim objective truth is on their side, that science and the facts are with them. And if you pay careful attention, or even mildly careful attention, you'll see that the target keeps moving. So in other words, this objective truth that has facts and science on their side, is changing all the time. So mixed messages abound. Here's what I'm going for today. I am going to be discussing all important questions surrounding gender and roles and responsibilities, and I hope to just give you God's message on this. God's message always requires interpretation. God's message is always contextual. However, God's message is unchanging. What prompted Jesus to say these shocking words to Peter, get behind me, Satan? Now, don't answer that. Just think about this for a second. What was it that prompted Jesus to tell the most outspoken disciple in the group? 
get behind me, Satan. I don't know if you've ever been rebuked by that. That's a pretty stern rebuke. Here it is on the screen. In short, it's that Peter was thinking man's thoughts instead of God's. Peter was putting forward an agenda that made sense to mankind, that made sense to the logic the logic of human reasoning, and didn't have God's way in mind. Here's a note for us. Setting our ways on man's ways instead of God's brings you into opposition with Jesus Christ, which is placing yourself on the same side of the field as Satan. That's really profound. That means that at every juncture, I say, man, as a Christian, I don't know who names Jesus as uh, name, but is on Jesus's team. It would never want to be found opposing Jesus Christ. I want to make sure I have this right on a host of issues. This is why I can't fathom going through the Christian life without being in your Bible every single day. I've grown to that point. I lived plenty of time in my life being a Christian without being in the Word every day. Now, I can't fathom it. So the stakes and urgency on this are incredibly high. We're talking about it this way. What are the fences and freedoms in the house of God? The commands and prohibitions that you find in Scripture, you ought to look for them. They are the thou shall nots. You must not. Don't ever or always do these things. These are called fences. Commit your life to the fences found in God's word. If God as loving Father has thought to put a fence up and say thus farther and no more, live your life by it for his glory and for your good. Other places you'll see suggestions. You'll see silence in the scriptures. Oftentimes these are freedoms found in the Bible. Enjoy them and use your freedom for good. Why is there so much variance on church governance? Because there's a few fences thus far and no more, or else you can't be a New Testament church, and there's loads of freedom. There's a giant playground of grass where God says, go and create, go and play, go and live, go and set up the structure. The brilliance of that is the church has been around for a really long time. Unlike any movement, it survives right now in an Afghanistan cave, in an open field in Nigeria, and in a fairly traditional, like just kind of normal church here in America with all kinds of variants in between there. Fences and freedoms. This entire series we're calling Dwell Well in the House of God. By way of reminder, what is the house of God? You. Jesus Christ did not die to purchase this space. Amen? We're not looking for the Holy Spirit to come and fill this atmosphere. You want to know where the Holy Spirit is? It resides, He resides in you. You don't know where the church is? It's wherever you take it, Christian. So when we gather together like this, how do we dwell well in God's household? Meaning as a church family, a church is just a family of families, right? That's what we are. So how do we dwell well in the house of God? Realize that there's all kinds of things we ought to be taking into our own home. I love that we have an engaged couple in here this morning. I won't embarrass them, but I'm stoked about it. And as you're setting up a home and you're preparing to get married, you're preparing to leave father and mother and set up your own home, you're wrestling through these issues. We have brand new parents. I was just on the phone with Laura Martinez. She's on a walk to Starbucks with little Robert, weeks old. She's excited to be out of the house walking with her newborn. 
They are thinking through parenting in a totally different way. Why? Because they're thinking through their own fences and freedom. They now bear the responsibility of doing this. So dwell well means we look to God to thrive as a church, to thrive in the home, not merely survive, not merely get by. As we talk about men and women and submission and authority, let me tell you, I've been praying for this service, and frankly, three weeks ago where we started this text, since before we began 1 Timothy Because I know this is a hot-button issue that has loads of baggage to it, good, bad, and ugly. Here's what we know. We know that God is a good father. We know that God is trustworthy. Do you know that you never, ever need to fear God's instruction for your life, ever? Perfect love casts out fear. Even when you have a really hard conversation with the Lord, and a conversation is reading the scriptures and talking back to him in prayer, You can do so without fear. So we can come knowing that God is the giver of all good gifts. If you're new to this church family, you'll just have to take my word for it. This is what we do as a family. As a family of faith, we walk through texts of scriptures. We don't just cherry pick the pastor's personal favorites where he's doing great, and so he preaches on them over and over and over again. We walk through the scriptures, and we have uh, easy conversations, and we have hard conversations. I think this one's going to be a little bit harder for, for many of us. First Timothy chapter 2 is where we're at. By way of review, I covered 8 through 10 three weeks ago. We had Vulnerable Children Care Sunday two weeks ago. We had, uh, or three weeks ago, we had a, um, two weeks ago, we had the birthday party, then Vulnerable Children Care Sunday. Big idea from part one, men and women are not interchangeable, to which we all think in our brain, Duh! Of course not. Men and women are not interchangeable. God gloriously made you male and female. So church, celebrate that and worship God in your skin. We talked about men in prayer. It matters that men pray. It matters that in the church men lead the way in prayer. It wasn't about external posture of lifting holy hands. It was about inner piety, integrating your heart and your hands. Women, you were told to dress to impress. Dress to impress. That is a God-given desire in you. And that's evidenced by the worldwide phenomenon of the beauty and fashion industry. Anywhere you go, in any time and place, beauty and fashion surround uh, the heart of a woman. Why? Because she wants to dress to impress. But do it as a Christian. Dress to impress your maker. Remember that good, day, good, good deeds are what look best on you, and good deeds are always in fashion. If not only, it not only is something beautiful to offer your maker by, by devoting yourselves to the good deeds, but it actually makes you beautiful in the process. This is part of God's phenomenal uh, thing that, that, that goes on. All right, so he talks about men and women with prayer and dress. Now he's moving on to learning and leadership. That's where we're going this morning, second part of it. Before I get there, I want to talk about worldview. Dwell well requires that we think well. And to think well, you must, in an ongoing way, have your thinking and your brain and your logic renewed. This isn't a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing thing. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. Tell me this is a really familiar verse. Is it? Nod your head. Absolutely. 
We think about this all the time. This is a really good thing. So we say, God, part of the fall is that my logic fell with the fall. Help me think logically according to your logic. We talked last week about guitars. I had a whole bunch more. Where's Tracy? Is Tracy in the room right now? I had a whole bunch more for Tracy to do, um, but we didn't get to it. But here's what we said, that people are like guitars. There's Tracy. She just walked in. People are like guitars. They get out of tune with God. So regularly, we need to check and see if we are in tune with God. How? By the standard of his word. God goes on record in world history and puts some things in writing that are really hard to hide or change or say, well, I didn't really mean that. Yeah, you did. It's in writing. It's called the Bible. It's a library of 66 books. So people get out of tune and need to regularly get back in tune. Your worldview shapes you. Your worldview shapes you. Here's a question. What shapes your worldview? What is a worldview? Let me define terms, something that isn't done with a lot of Twitter battles going on most of the time. We just throw around terms. Here's what I mean by it. It's the lens that you see the world through. You put on glasses and you look through it. It filters everything else. You actually don't even think about the lens you're thinking of. They're sort of the foundational truths that you don't even question because they're absolutely rock solid. Of course, these are true. It's the big picture that directs your daily decisions. And by the way, this can be both conscious and unconscious. So I want you to jot these down, if you would. I have a little guitar in your notes. If you can fit these words inside the strings of the guitar on your notes, man, it's, that's, that's a feat in and of itself. But here are six strings that make up a worldview. They're not these six strings, but this is what I'm talking about or thinking of for the purpose of this morning. Number one is God. What do you think about God? Is there a God or not? Is it a he or she or what? Where is God? These are really fundamental, important questions that that make up a worldview. Moving on, we have man, as in personhood and gender. This affects things like abortion and marriage and roles and interactions. Let me clue you in. Today's passage is hyper-focused on this string. This is the A string for you guitar players out there. That's what this passage is talking about. But I want you to see how interrelated it is. How about truth? Truth makes up your worldview. Is truth objectively knowable? Is it subjective? How do we know? That comes to the third one, knowledge. How do we know what we know? Do we only come to knowledge by experience and by, by what we personally experience, touch, see, taste, smell? Um, is the universe closed or, or is there a revelation that, in, that inserts into it? Right? These are things that, again, you begin to think about a secular human worldview uh, describes this experience we have as a, as a closed system. Let me move on. Ethics. How do you determine right from wrong? And finally, future. What happens when you die? Do you see how incredibly interconnected these all are? Let me walk through a couple things really quick. By the way, the reason so many Christians act just like non-Christians is that they share a worldview. Many people who name the name of Christ think exactly like people who don't name the name of Christ. Why? Because their worldview has been shaped by exactly the same forces. 
This is why there's loads of confusion. How could that person be a Christian and still blank? Ever ask that? I bet you anything it comes back to worldview. I bet you anything it comes back to uh, thinking in a way that isn't Christian, isn't biblical. So let me compare a little bit a secular human worldview versus what I'll call a biblical Christian worldview. I don't think it's enough to say a Christian worldview in America. Christian worldview is splintered into a thousand things. Let me add the word biblical. So we have a referee. We have something to go back to, some objective truth that doesn't change. Let me show you how one string affects all the rest. By the way, I, wouldn't, I didn't take time for this, but I was going to tune my guitar to where it sounded perfectly in tune with itself. I would have Tracy come up, strum an E chord, and then play a little song. She could play that. I would ask you, is the, tune, is the guitar in tune? You'd say, yeah, roughly it is. Then I would say, Tracy, tune the E string to this tuner. And by tuning that one string in tune with what is actually reality, it would make all five of the rest of the strings sound out of tune. Why? Because that guitar was in tune with itself. All the strings were in harmony, creating a song, but all of it was out of tune with the standard of truth. Make sense? So let me show you how this works. Uh, Secular human worldview says there is no God. I was born and raised here, went to public school my entire life. This is the air that I breathed. If I didn't have Christian parents who countered this, I would just think, of course there's no God. Any rational reasoning person knows that. I've come to disagree with that. Therefore, man is a collection of random events. Biblical Christian worldview says, yes, there is a God. And he, he's a person, is a creator. These are fundamental truths that affect every other string. Moves on to man. Moves on to what we think about personhood, right? So we're going through the New City Catechism, a book I would highly recommend. We're grabbing one question a week. There's 52 questions in it. If you do the math right, that's going to take you about a year to get through. We're a little behind. We're okay with that. This is a question that I know my two daughters know exactly what the answer is to this. How and why did God create us? How and why did God create us? Man, those are, those are really important things. God created us. You want to try it, ladies? You, you know it. Go ahead and say it. That's it. God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. Do you hear how fundamentally true those three things are and how it shapes everything else? God created us male and female, full stop. Whoa! That's under attack right now. God created us male and female in his image. Men, women, hear this. You are in the image of God distinctly as male and female and together. It's a beautiful picture. Why? To glorify him. You're not your own Christian. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your gender. All right. So, glorify God as male and female. God has a design. It is very good. To depart from it is very bad. So, what is it? How can we come in tune with God? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, 
then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let me take this passage and try to unpack what are the fences here and what is the freedom that's there. And I'm going to take it in these four ways. You can follow along in your notes if you're a note taker. What are the commands? What are the reasons he gives? What is the hope? And then not in the scripture, but in practice, how do we apply that here? What does that look like as a church family? So what is, the, what is commanded? This is found in verses 11 and 12. Remember the context is public worship. He is talking about when Christians gather for worship. It's what we're doing right now. That's the context of what he is talking about. We've got to keep that in mind. The commands are, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. He doesn't allow them to teach or exercise authority over man and to remain quiet. If we can for the moment, and here's what I challenge you. I said this three weeks ago. We need to take our biases and our past experience and almost say, I don't care what those are until I grasp what the scriptures mean, then I will grasp what the scriptures mean and form my life to what the scriptures are teaching. Otherwise, with many, many scriptures, we would hear it go, but wait, but, 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 right? And oftentimes, parents, we need to tell our kids, just let me finish. <laughs> let, me, let me give you the instruction, and then we can discuss. Paul is describing and prescribing a learning posture for women. Think about what a student is. They are quiet and submissive. Quiet can refer to complete silence, but it doesn't mean that here. Why would I say that? It's because of this. He's already used in 1 Timothy 2.2 about leading a quiet life. He's not saying lead a silent life. He's saying lead a quiet life. Paul means quietness of demeanor. It's the same thing that Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 4 about a, a gentle and quiet spirit is pleasing to the Lord. What does it mean to learn quietly? He answers that by saying it is to learn in all submissiveness. It is for a woman to place herself under the authority of another. Further, he explains that he does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. These are two related but distinct activities. Not to teach, respecting the command for quietness, and not to have authority over a man, corresponding to the command not to have authority over a man. So to put it another way, jot this down if you want. This sort of framed it for me a little bit. But learning is contrasted with teaching and submission is contrasted with authority. That's the correlation. Think about remaining silent and how it's the opposite of talking, okay? Uh, I have my mom here this morning, so she can attest to this, but you probably would have guessed this anyway. Do you know one of my biggest problems in school? It wasn't fighting. It wasn't chewing gum. It wasn't making faces. It was talking, God takes what was a weakness and turns it into something glorious and good. I used to get in trouble for talking. Now I get paid to talk. 
Remaining silent is the opposite of talking. When I am talking out of turn as a child on the soccer field, on the swim team, at home, wherever I was, I tended to be talking. Not only am I not learning, I'm actually preventing other people from learning. Additionally, I'm rebelling against the teacher's plan for the day, which shockingly did not include allow plenty of space for Dave to freestyle and make class more interesting and humorous. I always thought the teacher's plan should include that. They never did, ever. So by being a student who is quiet and submissive, I am not hindering my own learning. I'm not hindering the learning of others, and I'm not challenging the teacher's plan for the day. Do you see it? Paul is describing and prescribing a learning, a student posture for women. Be a quiet learner, not a talker. Be in full submission, learner. Stop competing by rebelling and start contributing by submitting. I didn't see it this way as a kid. I just had brilliant things pop into my head that I thought needed to be shared at all times. God began to gradually work on me with that. Now, culture and present-day norms have a way of being out of tune with God, always. What God is doing and working is called the good news. It's the gospel, and as people follow one wind of doctrine after the next, here's what happens. They come into alignment with God's frequency only briefly as they move from one extreme ditch over to another extreme ditch. So watch this in culture. I've lived long enough now that I see this go back and forth. And for a brief moment, from rushing headlong from one ditch into the other, they will come in line with God. And gender and roles is one of those. Let me say this. It was out of step and out of tune with Paul's culture to write under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that women should take a learner's posture. It's out of step with ours as well. Let me show you how first century Near East brains would have been mad at Paul for this and how your brain sitting here might be mad at Paul for this, okay? Here's a stab at it. First century Near East sensibilities are deeply offended at Paul. Why? Because he is putting women alongside the men as learners, as disciples, as full participants in the, in, in the discipleship process. This would have been deeply offensive to the point of violence. This is not uncommon right now, today. Go to Afghanistan and Pakistan and live under some other kinds of religious thinking. That's what's going on. A book I'd highly recommend to you, I read it a couple of months ago, called Malala. And she is a woman who was, a young woman, who was shot in the head by the Taliban, survived. What was she doing? She was learning. She had the audacity as a girl to learn. This is what Paul would have faced when he wrote this. Paul's good news of God was bad news in the culture he lived. By elevating women to such a historically shocking level, he was opposed. Now, fast forward 2,000 years and head west 7,500 miles. That places us right here in the Bay Area. On the way from male abuses to equality and fairness and empowerment, culture has rushed headlong into another ditch, the culture I was raised in, the Bay Area. 
Did they pass the frequency of being right in tune with God only briefly as they decided to go the other way? 21st century hearers hear this passage as demeaning to women. Interestingly, just the opposite of the scoffing that was going on when Paul said it in his culture. They didn't see it as demeaning. They saw it exactly opposite as elevating. Modern ears hear this as a disgusting, dated, dinosaur of an idea. Catch this. Paul's good news was bad news in his culture. God's good news for men and women are bad news in our culture as well. Both cultures would scoff equally loud, but for opposite reasons. Both extremes would point to this passage as proof positive that nothing good can come from teaching like this. Study Paul's life. He was not just verbally opposed, he was physically opposed, regularly. This is the kind of message that would have got him... uh, his hearers picking up rocks. And both would have missed the point of this passage completely. Let me give you a quick takeaway before I move on. Here's a takeaway. Submission is a spiritual good for all Christians. Do not place yourself under the authority. It's a frightening thing to be under the authority of someone who doesn't follow. They're called dictators in world history. If you give them power, They're called dictators. They're just called narcissists in a therapist's office if they're not in power. But one who's not under authority is a super dangerous person. Submission is a spiritual good for all Christians. The Bible is full of head-subordinate relationships, and they characterize God's good design. The Bible actually warns they have nothing to do with those who are under authority. Number two, teaching is more than downloading information. There's a relational component to leadership. It's not just about fill your head with the information, give it to someone else. There's something that goes on in teaching that changes that. We're going to see more of that next week. When it goes on to the biblical qualifications for an elder, you might be sitting here not knowing me, not knowing the Christian message going, who's this guy? I'm a nobody sinner saved by grace used by God under his authority to help lead the church. We're going to see next week, what does a biblically qualified elder look like? God's gone on record to spell that out. Leaders in the church must be able to teach. Why? Because teachers have authority, not just information. Teachers have a, 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 a standing in that person's life, not just the most charismatic person gets up front and can kind of turn a phrase. In fact, students and followers, both men and women, are required to follow, respect, submit, and imitate the faith of biblically qualified men who are charged to lead the church. So we see that teaching is more than just passing on information. Finally, we already covered this. Men and women are not interchangeable. Men and women are designed by God to fit gloriously together. Men and women are equal. Hear this. This shouldn't even need to be said, but I'll say it very bluntly. Men and women are equal in value, in dignity, in worth. We share in the inheritance in the inheritance equally as beloved sons and daughters. The next two verses in this passage are Paul giving his reasons for his instruction. And he talks about the fall 
He talks about the created order and the fall. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I want you to note that Paul doesn't base his reasoning on first century culture. He doesn't, he doesn't go to his culture and try to pull out reasons for it. He goes to Genesis. He goes to the very beginning where God created and said it's good. God created and said it's good. God created and said it's good. Then God created male and female. What did he say? It's very good. The crowning pinnacle of creation is you as a man, you as a woman. That's a remarkable thing. So Christian, be like Paul. Don't base your reasoning on 21st century culture any more than Paul would base his on 1st century culture. Base it on Scripture. Base it on God's design. So reason number one is the created order. Order of creation is very, very big in the Bible. It has to do with authority. Remember the whole idea of firstborn? It's kind of lost some of that here in our culture, but that was very big then. So Paul is pointing to creation for why a woman is not to exercise authority nor teach. God made Adam and commanded headship. That's the command to you, sons of God. God made Eve and commanded helpmate. That is commanded to you, daughters of God. Here's another question Almost every night when I tuck in Everly, she's seven. She goes, what is sin? And then she'll give me the answer. It's pretty awesome. I know it sounds a little bit weird. But she will do this unprompted, unscripted, and here's what it is. You want to try it, ladies? <laughs> They're like, quit putting us under pressure. Here it is. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he commands in his law, what he requires in his law. See, I got it on word perfect. I sinned. I bring this up because these catechism questions form like a, a track to run on. We get to keep coming back to them. Let me say bluntly that many today are rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. Most people I talk to when I press them on them moving away from clear, standard, biblical teaching and practice that's been around for a couple thousand years since the church formed, they don't have biblical convictions and biblical reasons for pulling away. It's cultural. It's worldview. Well, everyone knows that those statements are oppressive. Really? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. In the name of fairness, equality, and empowerment, you will hear this over and over and over. Let me give you a quote that I gave you three weeks ago. It's important. From start to finish, the biblical storyline and design of creation itself depends upon the distinction between male and female as different from one another, yet fitted each for the other. Remember, the creation is pairings that go together. Any move to abolish all distinctions between men and women is a move, whether intentionally or not, to tear down the building blocks of redemption itself. 
The creator is important, church. Number two, the fall into sin. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Let me take you to Genesis 3 so we can just look at it together and see it instead of just sort of remembering the story. Paul goes right to Genesis because the reasons for these commands are found there. So Genesis 3, verse 8, follow along with me if you'd like. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You hide when you're in shame. You hide when you know you're doing wrong. That's one of the saddest verses you could ever think of. God is walking with men and women in the perfect place of Eden, and they hide themselves. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Question, why does he call out to the man if the woman was the one who was deceived, as Paul says here? Here's why. Headship comes with responsibility. Headship comes with accountability. You read the rest of Scripture. We covered this in Romans a few years ago. It's the sin of Adam that led to the fall. Paul's bringing up something here in 1 Timothy super clear. It was the woman who was deceived first. But through the rest of Scripture, the headship, the responsibility, the one who will be held accountable is the man. Super important. Verse 10. And he said, I heard you in the sound of the garden. This is Adam responding. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Blame shifting, right? We see this every day. It's childish. It's ignorant. It's ridiculous. It's done all the time. Women, you're off the hook. She's going to do it in just a second. Do you see that helpmate and created order are both in this passage? I didn't see it until I studied it. I wouldn't have studied it unless I knew I had this assignment of teaching other people about it. In a fresh way, I see that helpmate created order, man first, woman to be with man because it's not good for man to be alone, is how it was. Adam says it plain as day. This woman whom you gave to be with me. Does that make men better than women? No. But the created order is there. I'm creating man and I'm creating a helpmate for man. Verse 13, then the Lord said to the woman, he addresses the woman. She's not a side thing player that just doesn't get discussed in this at all because that's a patriarchal society and it's the fall. No. What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. More blame shifting. The fall is a picture of the failure to obey the commands that are found in this verse. How did Eve sin? By being deceived and listening to Satan? Yes but also by teaching and leading her husband. She came and gave it to the husband. How did Adam sin? By accepting her leadership and her teaching when he knew all along it was wrong. Let me keep going in Genesis 3 for just one more second. Look at God's rebuke of Adam. Genesis 3.17. And, and to Adam he said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. God is saying to Adam, you knew it was wrong, and instead of leading, you went along. Instead of rebuking, you received. Adam, you've gone against the created order. Now, with the help of the Spirit, in fact, that's a giant understatement. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit, you'll never do this, men and women. But with the help of the Spirit, we know that men who lead don't tempt their wives into wanting to compete with them for headship. They involve their teammate and they celebrate their wives regularly in big and small ways. Women, hear me clearly. That never gives you the right to go against God's word, even if your man's not doing that. Women who help well by cooperating, cooperating rather than competing with their husbands, don't tempt their husbands into giving up their job as leader. Their wives show respect by the way they offer their help. Let me move on to the hope, verse 15. Verse 15 is a bit of a challenging verse. It could mean a couple of different things. Let me move very quickly through it. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's a bit of a challenging thing because one thing is this. We, we know that salvation here doesn't mean justification, declared righteousness before God. Women, you are not getting saved when you have a baby. Phew, I'm in. I made it through the pearly gates. That was painful. Thanks, Eve. So what does it mean that she will be saved through childbearing? It can mean that Eve brought the hope of the world through the child, capital C, referenced in Galatians 4, namely Jesus. I think a better interpretation is that this is the normative way that godly women adorn themselves. Paul talks about the good works that women are to dress up in and pay closest attention to earlier, but he never mentions what they are. I think this is him expanding on the good work. So again, women don't get saved by having kids. How about those who, for medical reasons, aren't able to have kids? What about those who are single? That's nonsense. That's, that goes against everything else in Scripture. That's easy to, to, to check off. Rather, women are working out their salvation, see Philippians 2, with fear and trembling. Not attaining God's favor, but seeking to walk in obedience because of his favor. Women are embracing their God-ordained role. I want you to know, we celebrate and elevate the role that women uniquely have in the home. Not only are women alone able to give birth, but we know that children are set up for success by a woman who is thoroughly committed to raising them in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Let me spend the few minutes I have left unpacking a little bit of how we apply this. How do we apply this as a household of faith at Neighborhood Bible Church? This is where things get sticky. People who are wickedly running from God and are men are pointing to this verse, chapter and verse, as to why they're doing that, backing up their sin. I think people, particularly men, who are abandoning 
their headship role as given by God has remained unchanged, Old Covenant, New Covenant, point to these kinds of verses and others like it, actually to, to point out God couldn't mean that. So how do we apply it? Our our social worker's name was Georgia, still is, I suppose. I don't think she's changed her name. And she named Jesus as Lord, but had a problem with Paul. One of the interesting things with adoption is you invite the government in to see where uh, sort of not only your home environment, where do you store your knives, but the emotional environment. What kind of climate is in this home? So she came, knew I was a pastor, knew I was a Bible teaching pastor, and she said bluntly, I have a problem with Paul. Why did she have a problem with Paul? Because of 1 Timothy chapter 2, I can almost assure you. We didn't talk chapter and verse, but that's what she was getting at. Do you know what she did? She grilled me. She grilled my wife. She grilled my small children about how dad sees headship and submission relationships. Georgia went on to place six children in our home. Having a problem with Paul, by the way. Why? Here's why. She did it not to roll the dice and say, well, I think there's lots of problems here. Rather, I think this. I think she saw, obviously imperfectly, but she saw biblical fruit come out in how you can live this out. I want to tell you, I am preaching this today, seeing a great example of a spiritual leader in my home, in my father. And I saw a great example in my mom. Mom, I didn't even ask if I could share this, but I came across one of my dad's old Bibles. I think it was probably the last Bible he got because it wasn't all that marked up. It was gifted by my mom on December 25th, and she said, to John, my spiritual leader, thank you for letting me, you know, letting me be easy to love you, some sort of thing like that. I had a wonderful picture in church and home of this lived out. So what's the application? Let me just say, these verses go a long way to bringing clarity on the distinct roles and responsibilities of men and women. Neighborhood Bible Church has male elders at this church. And we do so not only on this verse, but we're going to see this next week. The husband of one wife is what the qualification is in chapter 3. If you read the flow of 1 Timothy, we see just in that one book, it's, it's in a lot of places. Men are to lead in the church and not give that role to women. So men, we don't We don't lay down that responsibility. We pick it up. We also call men to lead in the home. We not only command them in the Lord, but we encourage them, we equip them, and we hold their feet to the fire when they aren't doing it. We have 15 years now of history here at this church. I've seen restored marriages as men have taken up their responsibility to lead seriously, utterly transform the home. There are men not sitting in this room today because of this issue right here. Yours truly and the leadership culture here will not let them get away with it, not just the men. The women look at that and say, that's not how it's supposed to be in the household of God. You want to know what men's ministry looks like at Neighborhood Bible Church? It looks like this. We have a family ministry that very distinctly says helping family raise disciples. Parents, we will never usurp your authority, your God-given role to raise your children in the fear and discipline of the Lord. It's not the church's job. It's not the youth pastor's job. It's not your child's mentor's job. It's your job. Men, you will uniquely be held responsible by God for how you raised your children. How do we help them? 
we help them by having the parents of the church take seriously that we consider the needs of others as even more important than ourselves. That means the needs of other children as just as important as our own children, not to the neglect of our children. You don't know what men's ministry looks like? It says, men, get involved in teaching the children of our church, showing what a godly man is to look like. Take all that you've been doing in your home as a springboard for this coming Sunday and bless the children of the church with it. By the way, you're going to rub shoulders with other men and other women who are crazy gifted at being with children and discipling children. You're going to take those thoughts and ideas. You're going to begin to implement them in your home. Men are looking for a challenge. They're looking for a hill to climb and conquer. They're looking for a battle to fight all of these things. Video games, are you kidding me? They have their place, tiny sliver of the pie. Cheering on other men on the battlefield, goofy. That's weird. This will give you plenty, plenty to do. So that's part of men's ministry here at this church. Go and do this at your home. It will keep you busy, engaged, and feed the hunger, pursue something great. A couple more. We celebrate women in our church family and in our homes as invaluable and irreplaceable helpmates to all that God requires. This is particularly demonstrating your role as wife and mom. Know that the work in the home is good and fulfilling and worthy of highest praise. You want to hear something ridiculous? A ridiculous phrase that women feel pressured to say when asked what they do is this. I am just a homemaker. I am just a mom. Instead, I asked my wife this. I said, babe, how do you answer this when you, when you get asked that? I've heard it. And I've always thought, I like that answer. Here's how she says. She says, I have the distinct joy and privilege of being with and discipling my children full time. It's probably not quite like that every single time. But that sounds kind of countercultural. Of the four daughters, Becky was the one touted as probably the best at school. She could have been anything. You know what she wanted to be? A wife and a mom. She's doing it. We don't demean or judge those who work outside the home. Hear that really, really clearly. We don't demean or judge those who work outside the home, but we do challenge it. If you say to me, this is true this week, if you say to me, well, everyone just has to work two times. We we know we just have to do it. I say, really? Do we have to? So we want to challenge that. And we want to put our money, mouth, time, effort where our mouth is by wrapping around and supporting. We live in one of the most ridiculously expensive places on the planet. Is it true that most have to have two full-time incomes? Absolutely. Totally. But man, we press to really support you in not doing that. Um, Women participate in. (laughs) I didn't finish that sentence. Um, In the church. Women are, not, women are in no way inferior. That's another ridiculous phrase, but I'm just going to say it bluntly once again. Women are active in all the body life of the church. Women with gifts of leadership and teach it, use it in accord with Scripture. You have some amazing examples at this church, young ladies, of this going on. Older women to younger women, according to Titus 2, in private, where Priscilla and Aquila take the preacher aside privately and say, hey, here's a better way of understanding that. 
That's teaching. That's leadership happening as a couple. That goes on regularly. We also see it in children in pre-college realm of those women who are teaching and leading and being involved, not violating this command. Additionally, we see women as singers, strategists, prayers, servants, theologians, writers, mentors, and disciplers. What is a gift? What is a woman with a gift of teaching to do? I think writing is a great exercise in that. I think doing older women to younger women is a great picture in that. I think youth ministry pre-college is a great application of that. Let me invite the band to come on up right now. We are going to sing, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and go out with a blessing. And as we do that, let me invite you to just close your eyes for a moment, bow your heads, and in that physical posture, quiet your heart and mind. And God, we just say that we want to come into conformity with you. If there are things, God, that the way we do things at this church is something we should repent of and run from, would you help us see that plain as day? God, if there are things that we need to reform and tweak and grow in because we say it with our mouth, but we aren't living it, God, we are open and humble to receive that. We want to meekly receive the implanted word, not impose our judgment on it. And finally, God, if there are things that simply need to remain, some of the hardest things we are called to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ, is simply to remain faithful to what you've revealed to us. God, it is increasingly difficult to name the name of Jesus Christ and live the life he called us to on a public high school campus. In like manner, God, it is increasingly pressured to pull away from one side or the other than your plan for our church gatherings, for your plan for our homes and marriages and children. God, we invite and celebrate your help and correction. In Jesus' name, amen.